0: Please turn with me to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. We'll pick things up in verse 9. Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. A sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your living word. It is sharper than any two edged sword, and Lord, you are the one who wields it. In fact, you go about in this world to conquer. And Heavenly Father, how we pray that you would indeed conquer each and every one of us. Lord, we know that the purpose of preaching is indeed to humble the sinner and to exalt the living God. And how we pray, Lord, that that would be done this very day to your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We come now to this middle section of chapter 18 and to the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Most of you know this is one of my favorite texts and uh, I probably, every other sermon I probably make some reference to it and preaching in other places. I've preached it, I've mentioned it numerous times in the series on Luke. But now here we are, we're preaching on it as the main subject and the challenge is to uh, not only to make sure that our familiarity with this does not breed contempt. We know that that's the general principle, that familiarity breeds contempt. We don't want that to happen. And also we want to make sure that we really understand what it means. It's not just a, an illustration or something that exists without any kind of explanation. Now we really need to understand what it means. So in this introduction, let's begin then with the introduction given to us in inspired scripture which is, of course, the best place to begin. I've mentioned to you that parables require interpretation. Most of them, thankfully, are interpreted. And here we begin with the purpose of the parable, which is in verse 9. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. That's the purpose of the parable. Now, that word Trusted, that's actually the word we get uh, where we we have the word pathos from. And we might translate it that they were persuaded on the basis of themselves that they were righteous. So it's not so much that they were trusting in themselves, as, as in you could trust in something else or you could trust in yourself. That's not really the sense of it. What it means is that internally they were fully persuaded on the basis of what they saw of themselves. On that basis, they were fully persuaded. That they were righteous. Now, I'll just note, they were fully persuaded of something that was completely false. A reminder that when you encounter someone who is completely sincere in something that they believe, they're fully persuaded of. It. it doesn't mean that it's true. We there are there's many, many false ways, and only one true one, and just the fact that That we are fully persuaded of it doesn't mean that it's true. Well, this particular man couldn't have been persuaded of anything more false imaginable than the fact that he was perfectly righteous. In fact, you'd ask the question, how could anyone really think that they were righteous? Well, two things, a very low idea of God, a very uh, uh, high idea of themselves, you know, that's, that's what Calvin says at the beginning of his famous work, The Institutes, that pretty much all knowledge consists of a knowledge of God and of ourselves. And these two things are interrelated. Well, so it is here. This man got it so wrong only because he had such a low view of God's law, which was rooted in a low view of God himself. If he really understood the majesty and the perfection of the Ten Commandments and all the things that they required... And he would never think that he was righteous. But no, he has low thoughts of God's law, low thoughts of God himself. He has high thoughts of his own righteousness. Well, in this, as we understand this introduction and as we come to seek to understand this word, this parable, we have to have an accurate self-knowledge, okay, We have to, in that way, when we say accurate, what I mean is that we come to have the same view of ourselves that God does, you see. That's what confession means. When we speak of confessing sin, what are we saying? What does confess mean? It doesn't mean revealing a new thing to a living, omniscient God. He knows our hearts. Confess means that we speak together. We are saying the same thing as someone else. He's saying it, and we're saying it, that is confession. That's why we have a confession of faith. We all together confess the same confession of faith. When it comes to sin, we are also making confession. We're saying the same thing as someone else. Who? God. See? God is saying something about us. Do you know what he says? You are a sinner. You have sinned against me. And when we confess, we say, yes, Lord, you are right. I am a sinner. I have sinned against you. That's what we're doing. We're saying the same thing. We're making confession. Well, that is, by the way, just to skip to the, the end of the sermon, that's how the tax collector was saved. Okay, that's the name of the sermon this morning. How the tax collector was saved. And we have three points. Opposite men. Opposite modes and opposite outcomes, okay? How the tax collector was saved. First, opposite men. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. Thus far, nothing remarkable at all. The temple was God's chosen place, his dwelling place upon on, on earth, and it was a right place, a designated place for men to pray, and they did so all the time. The remarkable thing was not that the two men went up to pray, but that one was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pharisees loved to do that. That was their favorite place to go do this. They wanted to be seen by others to be praying. The tax collector had other things to do. That was remarkable. And beyond that, of course, these were utterly Uh, Regarded as utterly opposite types. The Pharisee is a kind of epitome of the upright, religiously observant Jew and the tax collector, the definition of a sinner. And not just a sinner, a mercenary sinner, a treacherous sinner, a traitor against his own people to the Roman government and usually lived in a completely dissolute life. They figured, look, if everyone hates us, and they did because they would steal again, steal from the people. And this money would either go to themselves or to the Roman government. Of course, both of those things. They were hated for it. If we're going to have all this, this hatred, we might as well use this money uh, to, to live it up for a while. And that's what they did. They lived dissolute lives. And so they're the epitome of the unrepentant, ongoing sinner. And so on the face of it, you have two utterly opposite men, one righteous and one a sinner. It'll be interesting because at the end, by the time we get to the end, that will be reversed. But on the face of it, you have a righteous man and you have a sinner and they're going up to pray. But even though, even though they're opposites, let us not forget that there were yet two men, two men went up to pray. And what I want to say here is that the basic human condition cuts across all the circumstances. It's universal. Among ourselves, we sometimes think of people being so very, very different. But in God's eyes, he looks at us and says, I've created you in my image. Male and female, he created us in his image. We are made in the image of God. It's universal. And beyond the universality of our being made in the image of God, we're fallen sinners. What is our condition? Well, we're just men. Men and women made in the image of God, fallen mankind, fallen from that, and we are sinners in the sight of a holy God. And that's, that's, that cut across, it cuts across all of our circumstances. It's completely universal. That's why I can preach the gospel to you. Some of you, I don't know. You've come for the wedding. I don't really know you. I met a couple of you at the, at the table. I don't know the rest of you. How can I preach to you? Because your situation is the same as anyone one ounces on this earth spiritually. You fall into one of two categories. You're either unrepentant sinners or you're repentant sinners, saved in Christ. In either case, you are sinners before a living God. And so I know how to speak. I know how to preach. I have a message for you because you are men. And women made in the image of God. Two men went to pray. And secondly, they had these opposite men. But secondly, there were opposite modes. Opposite modes. Now, what is a mode? Well, there's, there's lots of uses for that concept. But sometimes I think of it in terms of calculators. Maybe you've seen a scientific calculator. Uh, and, and there are different modes. Okay. Now, you can type in the very same numbers and you can get utterly different results, completely different results, depending on which mode that you use. Right? If you have this sort of normal mode and then you can click on it and maybe there's hexadecimal or binary or something like that or various other kind of modes, and the numbers could not possibly be any different, any more different than what they are when you change that mode. And you say, is this a different calculator? No, it's the same calculator, but you're interacting with it with different modes. It changes the rules of operation and you get utterly, completely different results from it. Well, these are two men and they're praying to the same God, but they're doing so using two opposite modes, okay? Two modes you can come to God to, the mode of justice and the mode of mercy. The Pharisee came In the mode of justice. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as a tax collector. You see, his uh, understanding of himself, he is not there to ask for mercy at all. Rather, his expectation is that he is already where he needs to be, and he is rather pointing out to God those who are less. He goes on in verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Why these items? Why not some other items of the law of God? Why does he particularly bring up the fact that he's fasting and giving tithes of all he possesses? Well, he is. first of all, he's assuming that he's done all the other things, the righteous requirements of God's law. These are things that Pharisees thought that they were doing above and beyond the requirements of the law. Everyone, the common rabble, they, had, they followed the actual dictates of the law, but they did even more. These were works of supererogation. Right? I fast twice a week. The Bible doesn't say to fast twice a week. The only command I know of is once a year, and then a special occasion might, might, might demand. But such is his Pharisee's self-righteousness that he goes beyond it and he expects to be noticed for it. I fast twice a week. And he goes on to say, I give tithes of all I possess. But you know what? The Bible didn't say to give tithes of all you possess. There were specific things that they were supposed to tithe. Deuteronomy 14, 22. You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain in the field uh, that your field produces year by year you shall eat before the Lord and your God in a place where he chooses the tithe of your grain and your new wine and of your oil of the firstborn of your herds and flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Okay, those special categories of things, those things, those main things you're supposed to tithe. But the Pharisees know that wasn't good enough for them. God's own law, the one he revealed for people, wasn't good enough for them. They wanted to add to it. And so in Luke eleven forty two. 42 this is the Lord Jesus speaking, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. See? So they add to the law of God in tithing even these uh, minor things. Well, in as much as he's asking for anything, and I guess technically speaking, he's not asking for anything. It's it's self-praise. It's a threadbare covering of thanking God that he's so wonderful. But in effect, what is he asking for? He's asking that God would agree with his own description of himself. You see? He has a a conception of himself. He's not there to be disabused of it. He thinks he's wonderful. He goes into the presence of God, or so he thinks, And he says, Lord, I expect you to agree with my conception of myself. I'm wonderful. You do agree with that, don't you? And that God would agree with his description and that he would in justice render the appropriate judgment. Because if that were true, if he really were so perfect that he kept all of the law of God perfectly and to add to it some other things on top of that, what would a just God give to him? Well, the just God would give to him eternal life and many rewards besides. If there was such a person who, who fulfilled every aspect of the law and then beyond it, did things in addition, well, surely he would be rewarded of a just God. Now, we can say in point of fact that is what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And he was the only one who actually kept all the righteous requirements of the law on his own behalf, and then beyond that, of course, he laid down his life for his own people. He did not have to do it. He was not under any requirement to do it. There is no law that says that you need to die for your, your, your friends, for your people. But the Lord Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life for that. And he has received, of course, everlasting glory from the Father for having so done. Well, the Pharisee, of course, problem with him, as we'll see doesn't quite live up to that. But he's expecting the button he has pressed on the the uh, on this calculator as it was was I want justice. Give me justice. Here's what I am and I'm expecting an answer based on this mode of justice. The Pharisee expects justice, but be the tax collector ask for mercy. These are opposite modes. He says In verse thirteen. The tax collector standing afar off, think of that again, he's not coming to the the very closest part of the, the temple. He doesn't think he's worthy of that. He's standing afar off, would so not not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, which would have been the normal mode of prayer for them as as this. Would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. All these things are really important because he's not just saying these words, he's not just mouthing these words, it is flowing from his heart. He really believes this. He really believes that he is this low. He doesn't belong in the center of the temple, he belongs way on the outskirts of it. He doesn't belong in the presence of a holy God he is afraid even to lift his eyes up to God with his, burning, his eyes of burning holiness, looking upon men and women in his perfect law and his righteousness and justice. Doesn't he want to look up. He believes what he's saying. And by the way, that word a sinner, has, I guess it has to be translated that way, but actually it's the sinner in the Greek. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Because that's the heart of those who are truly repentant, those who truly know themselves to be sinners. They don't think of themselves as one among many. They think of themselves as singular, as the, the worst case. That's just what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am. Am chief. He does not come and say, "I'm a sinner." Yes, but there are worse than those. He says, "No, I'm I'm the worst." He's not wrong, and he's not asking God to agree with his own inflated estimation of himself. That's what the the the, the Pharisee did. God, here's who I am, who I think I am. You'll surely agree with me. No, it's the opposite. He is instead agreeing with God's evaluation of him. He agrees with God's evaluation of him as a sinner. And he knows what he deserves, condemnation. And he goes, as it were, and he presses the button, the mode button. He changes the mode, He presses it as hard as he can until it changes from justice to mercy. And that's what he asked for. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, on on that, if you're in justice mode and you you say that you're a sinner, the answer that you get is hell, eternal hell, judgment, okay? But but if you're in mercy mode, you get something else from God if you say that you're a sinner. Now, if you say that you're righteous in mercy mode, what do you get? Nothing. Nothing. But if you say that you're a sinner, worthy of the very worst, then that's what you get is mercy. Get mercy. And that's what he's asking for. And that's the thirdly and finally, that's the opposite results. Verse 14, this is Jesus' affirmation. This is Jesus' explanation of these things. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Again, people around would say, there's a righteous man. He's going up to pray. And you see, he's proud. He has nothing to hide from God. He's there in the the very middle and central part of the temple. He surely went down to his house justified. And the other man, this tax collector, there he is. He's not even willing to lift up his head. Surely he went down to his house in the same condition. But it's opposite. It's opposite. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. I tell you that, Jesus says. So you don't make any mistakes, so you don't have any misconceptions. You take it from the Lord Jesus Christ, this man was justified. It's the very same word as we use theologically for justification. He was justified in the sight of God. He was a sinner, yes. He was a sinner, yes, but through his, through his confession, Through his trust, through his coming to 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 God and in mercy, and of course, any any Jew would have understood that there is a Messiah through whom that they receive this mercy. They put their trust in the, the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. On that basis, he is justified, but not the other. Rather than the other, because of course that man was very mistaken, wasn't he? He wasn't so perfect. No one is. We're going to see just in a moment. No one is. And he received nothing from God. And in fact, rather, this principle he ends with, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Because that's the thing. These are not just two, just, you know, take your pick which mode you want to interact with God with. You understand that this this God of ours, the one true and living God, he is in the business of humbling those who exalt themselves. The heart of Satan is a heart of pride. He wanted to lift himself up and exalt himself to the place of God himself, and God is in the the business of crushing that. And so it is with every other human sinner who rises up in pride and says, I'm so wonderful. God says, I stand to oppose you. Now, you may think that you're bigger than God, but I, I guarantee that God will win. And we in our pride stand up against God. He says, I will. I will find a way. To humble you. But on the other hand, those who humble themselves before God, it's, it's like what Jesus says this, this rock. Some are going to stumble on that rock and fall down. They used to be prideful, but when they counter Christ, they fall down in their face, and now they're humble. But there are others who will not, in such a way, come before Christ, and they will be crushed to powder by that same stone, by that same rock. Everyone who humbles himself or exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so they have these opposite results, opposite men using these opposite modes of approaching God, and they, re- and they receive these opposite results. The applications are rather straightforward. The first one is just to agree with what God says about you. Just agree. Just agree. You are a sinner. That's what he says. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we better than they? That was the thing. He said it was about these people who exalted themselves and, and despised others. And believe it or not, that is rife. That is not the last time on the face of the earth that anyone ever exalted themselves and, and despised others. Unfortunately, that is all too common in the human heart. And he says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that, we are, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are on their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and the world may become guilty before God because that's what they are. The whole world, we are guilty before God. We are sinners. We have not kept this law. It is delusional to imagine that we have. That's what God says now, and that is what God will say on the final day. He will say in Matthew seven twenty three. Then, and then, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness. You sinners. That's what he'll say then. And all we're saying is that you can say that now. God says it of you. God will say it of you. And can we really be so conceited as to think that He's wrong? No, no. We must say, God, you are right about me. You've been right all along. I am a sinner, deserving absolutely nothing from you except your judgment. And then, therefore, you come secondly and ask God for mercy, not justice. As I say, there's only these two modes of interacting with God. Either you come to him expecting justice or you come to him expecting mercy. And the two things, do not mix. Let me say this, okay? You cannot mix these modes. can't do that on a calculator. And let me say you cannot do that certainly with God. You cannot have, can I get you know, 90% mercy and 10% justice? No, you can't get 99% mercy and one person justice is either completely one or completely the other you cannot bring any aspect of your good works in the the mode of mercy it is complete and utter mercy just as abject as bankrupt as that sinner was on that day i'm completely a sinner and i'm completely and only asking for mercy in the person of the lord jesus christ and that is it god's wonderful mercy now, let me just say, we understand that the default setting is always going to be justice. That's the default setting of the human heart. It's grounded in that first covenant of works. And however gracious the terms of the covenant of, my, of works might have been, and it was gracious or generous, the basis upon which Adam and Eve might either win or lose was justice. That's all. And that covenant has never really been put to an end it's never really been abrogated it's still in force for all those who are outside of christ obey and live sin and die but you've all sinned and and the natural human heart is conditioned to expect justice from god and you shall receive such justice the other mode as i mentioned it's, it's based on the covenant of grace not getting what you deserve at all. It's a completely different mode of interacting with God. There's nothing related to what you deserve, right? You can't say, well, I am kind of bad, but because I'm a little bit more receptive, a little bit more intelligent, a little bit more faithful or something like that, then therefore I actually deserve to receive you. No, no, the only thing that qualifies you for mercy is your bankruptcy and coming on the basis of nothing other than pleading for that mercy. Again, imagine if there are two thieves that came before a judge. They are both guilty of theft, but not only theft in a general sense, but from, they actually stole a lot of money, thousands of pounds, both of them, from this particular judge, the one that's there in front of them. And he says, well, what do you have to say to me? And one of them, arrogantly, borderline delusional, he doesn't even mention the theft that he's committed against them, but he expects to be exonerated. You know Why? In fact, he doesn't even expect to be exonerated. He he actually expects to be given some sort of honor, some sort of medal for this. He says, my Lord, you should know that I don't just drive 30 miles an hour in a 30. I drive 25. And I drive 60 in a 70. And when I pay for parking, I always pay for an extra hour. Doesn't even mention the fact that he has stolen from this judge. And he expects that his trivial, made-up things that no one's even asked him to do are going to more than make up for these other things. See? Well, brothers and sisters, if you've not been worshiping the living God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you have been stealing from the very judge of whom you're expecting to receive some great justice from. Your only hope is to ask for mercy and not for justice from him. And then finally, I would say we should worship such a God because that's a great use of it. When we find out that God is merciful, it is something that we should worship. Isn't it a wonderful thing that our God is so merciful? You know, in Exodus, when when God reveals himself to Moses, Exodus 34, now the Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him, Stood there with him and proclaimed the name. What is the name of the Lord anyways? He's going to proclaim the name of the Lord. He's going to reveal his identity to Moses. Here's what it is. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. As part of the the revealed character of God to his people, when he opens his mouth to declare who he is, after he gives his own covenant name of the Lord, he says the word merciful. And then after that word merciful, he says the word gracious. Goes on even in verse 7, keeping mercy for thousands. What do we do in the face of such a merciful, holy God? Yes, he's a holy God. He goes on to say that he doesn't clear the guilty. Those who don't come to him in terms of mercy, those who are are proud before him, he is going to visit judgment upon them. But what do we say to a God who is so wonderfully, freely merciful to those who come asking for it? Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth, and worshiped. This is our God, and we should worship him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have spoken these words to us. You have dictated this parable through the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself having spoken it. You have declared these words you revealed yourself to Moses, that you are truly a merciful God. Lord, what madness of it is it that we should ever deny the words, the declaration that you've made to us when you tell us that we're all likewise sinners. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all disobeyed your holy law. What madness to imagine that we haven't and instead of listening to this wonderful revelation that truly you are a merciful God to those who come seeking mercy, rather to come wanting justice. Heavenly Father, perish the thought. How we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would now and forevermore, always and only, interact with you on the basis of mercy, because we have heard that you are a merciful God. And now we pray that each and every one here, young and old, might receive mercy from this merciful God and Lord, through the Lord Jesus Christ, be found in him, not having their own righteousness, but rather the righteousness that is given through faith in Christ. We pray it all in his name. Amen.